Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. This is Vita Pirdas again, with happy to be here today with Rebecca Foster. Rebecca is a meditation teacher, conscious dance facilitator, traditional and laughter yoga teacher, and she has a master's in public affairs from Princeton University. She presently serves as a lead facilitator and mentor for us, the Mindfulness, the Prison Mindfulness Institute. And she often she offers courses in mindfulness-based emotional intelligence to the men's and women's medium security correctional facilities in Rhode Island. Over the past 15 years, Rebecca has taught a unique blend of mindfulness movement, laughter, and play in diverse settings ranging from yoga studios to hospitals, prisons, to universities, preschools, to nursing homes. She also has lived and worked in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and currently resides in Providence, Rhode Island. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. So you've been teaching for a long time in prisons. What got you started on this? What inspired you to start doing this many years ago? Many, many years ago. My, I think my very first insight meditation retreat, there was a magazine. It was a, an insight journal, I think. I don't exactly remember what the, the title of the journal was, but there was an article about, um, it was called Surviving the Whole. And I, uh, I, it just never left me. It was an article about a, um, a young man who had spent his lifetime really being thrown in the hole by his parents and then eventually by, um, by the facility he was incarcerated in. And he, the only crack of air he had was at the very base of his door. And he, so he lay down next to the floor and breathed and no formal meditation instruction whatsoever, but he simply breathed. And in the course of this, he has like a full unfolding of all of the, all of the things we want to unfold when we sit on the cushion and, um, or sit in the chair. And he has quite a remarkable transformation. Um, and then at one point, he's somewhat unaware of it because he's just in this experience of it. And at one point, a correctional officer says to him, makes a, has a, just compliments him on his behavior. And he is just, he's never gotten a compliment before in his life. And so it's like a profound moment of kind of realization of the awakening that he has been experiencing. And a beautiful story and it just really touched me and that along with Thich Nhat Hanh's Be Free Where You Are book which is a those of you don't aren't familiar with it um is just a simple a speech of his in a maximum security prison um, in Pennsylvania so those were two little pieces that kind of got lodged in my relationship to my own practice I remember with Thich Nhat Hanh's um book I was just like wow he's talking about relating to all of life through an institutionalized green bean. And here I am with access to like organic, fresh, everything. And I darn well better be connected to all of life through this little, through my green beans, etc. And so those were two pieces. And then the Dhamma Brother movies um, came out mm -hmm. and that just 
I just, I watched that movie over and over again. I showed it to as many people as I could in my various and sundry communities of practice. And eventually I was, I was so struck by how deeply I was moved by that movie that I wanted to bring. I was already teaching on the outside and I wanted to start teaching on the inside and it took me a while to find my way in. And, but I spoke to enough people and eventually I hooked up with a, 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 a community that was teaching here, uh, actually in the very same room I was in this morning. Um, <laughs> that was a long time ago. The room has been since cut in half, but uh, that was the very first time I was able to join that team of people who were going in at that time. And very quickly, like within a month, I was teaching in another facility and then another facility. And I started to really realize that this was um, really important to me and uh, a really important part of my own practice. And um, also something that for whatever reason, just um, allowed me to feel like I was doing the work that I was, um, that I needed to be doing in the world in a way that many other things did not. So, yeah. That's so, that group was the one that Jill and Richard and yeah. Yeah. That they had been running it for a long time and I was with, I was there for a few years and then, um, the prison mindfulness Institute moved to town and, yeah. <laughs> and then they merged, then they offered us that group yeah. to take over because I think Jill was doing something else. And so, um, then Rebe Rebecca came on board and quickly learned the path of freedom curriculum that we had going. And now she's probably our lead teacher everywhere. <laughs> teaching the path of freedom curriculum. So you've been teaching it for a long time. You have a lot of skill working with that mindfulness-based emotional intelligence curriculum. And the thing I would like to talk most to you about is this thing that developed a few, I don't know how many years ago did it develop that we started training that, you, that we got the idea like, Oh, let's train inside right. facilitators. Let's train those, the folks who are inside to teach this themselves. Was that like four or five years ago? It's like, COVID makes it hard to kind of figure out. Um, it was certainly, I would say three years before, at least three years before COVID because they were actually apprentices in my classes for at least two years after they initially finished the program. So it's been a while. Um, and you know, two of those guys are, were in my class this morning, um, two of the original apprentices. Um, and so, and I saw a third apprentice who's on the outside, who um, on the outside uh, just this last weekend and in a meditation group. So um, and you led the we led a meditation in your outside meditation group, right? Yeah. So it was really exciting. And um, yeah, so that program has meant a lot to me for obviously very various reasons. But speaking of COVID, I would say the thing that like, Blew, blew my heart open after COVID was the very first time I was able to get in. Obviously, they were on lockdown for a long time. And then even when they weren't on lockdown, it took a long time for us to get our program back inside because initially they were keeping the class sizes super, super small. And so a year ago, almost exactly, we started back in. And um, what I was especially moved by was those apprentices really spoke, not only the apprentices, actually. But in particular, the apprentices really spoke about the way they were able to show up during the lockdown as like beacons of peace, 
at the, you know, as beacons of um, meeting what's arising in a in non-reactive way or in as non-reactive way as possible of self-compassion, compassion for others. And I did not elicit this. This was sort of what they um, gave to me with the, the minute I was back in that space. And that was really like, wow. <laughs> Like not only is this like making a personal difference, it made a difference. Who knows how many, but made a difference to the quality of the experience for more than just a handful of people. So that was really great. And um, contextualize yeah. those classes. Um, so the classes tend to have a very large waiting list, right? We have over two hundred people on our waiting yeah. list. Yeah. So the word has gotten out that these classes are happening there. And um, before COVID, maybe the classes would be, the men's class would be like 45s to start or something. We, I, we, I tried to keep it 25. Okay. I'm actually really grateful that they now have really, they're, they're letting us have a dozen now. <laughs> and I'm realizing that a dozen is a lot, makes a a lot more sense than having 25 people in the room, especially when there's a range of interest because in our program, the um, participants get good time. So they have, to, they get time off their sentence. So there's a wide range of reasons why people are there. And so. Um, yeah, a lot of initially come just to get time off their sentence and they're maybe not interested at all, but then some, usually they get one over a little bit, right? Yeah. yeah I would say like, the people, you know, there's the people who'd be there regardless, and they're wonderful because they're really so self-motivated and, um, and they're great to have in the class. But the people I get most excited about are that middle, there's the people who are only there for the good time and boy, <laughs> just trying to get them over the finish line. And maybe there's some seed that gets planted that, you know, we've all heard the stories of, um, of ways in which somebody who doesn't think they got anything suddenly something clicks or they make a different kind of choice in a moment that matters. I know you have some really um, <laughs> pivotal stories around that, but I, I love those people in the middle that are there. I'm just signed up for the good time. And you can see it's like, Oh, this actually is making a difference to me. This is making a difference to my family. This is making it how I interact. This is making me, it's, it makes a difference to the way I walk across the yard. And that is really, that's really fun to see. And then, it, you know, a graduation at the end of that beginning class, it's like, I took this only for the good time, but, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it turns out to mean something. And now we have, I have, um, yeah, the level two class, I have to say those guys coming from beginner who are jumping in there's a range again they still get a little bit of good time for taking the second class but not as much and I'm uh, the first class couple classes I was like ah. but I feel like today they landed and it was, it was the third class and I felt like everybody was all in at their wherever they were but it was really great and I have two of these guys who've been with one of whom, maybe two of them were in the very original class 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Right. Um, sadly to say, but they're still here and they are both apprentices and they really enable me to, I can share these things, but I can't share them in a way that 
comes from deep embedded experience within corrections and um, that, and within the system. And these two men speak so beautifully in really different ways about how the practice changes the way they move through the world and the way they relate to themselves and others. So to have them blanking me <laughs> is really, really great. Um, I think they garner a lot of respect from the other men. And so it definitely, and they also know me really well. And, you know, I can be a little kooky sometimes. And so it, it allows a sense of playfulness to emerge at the same time as like a real deep hearted presence and, um, an interest in making, um, in making this like a part of everybody's lives. So that seems like that's a really valuable program to try to develop and sustain. But let's, what are some of the challenges that, how many people have you actually, have we actually had in those class, in those apprentice programs? Had, oh, in, in the apprentice program? Yeah. I've had, I think a total of seven, maybe six or seven. You know, one of the challenges is like one of the, one of the, younger man who was really all in and who I was really excited, who was a newer person, then got transferred to minimum. And so, you know, so there's some like that that happens. Um, as apprentices, because they show up in other, the other classes, it's sometimes they deliver things in ways that are like, oh, that's not how I would have delivered it. Um, so there's the challenge of like, always the challenge of handing over some measure of the curriculum and then having it go in a way that you really were like, that's not um, how I wanted to go. And then the flip side of that is having their voices speaking, leading meditations um, and, you know, maybe explaining concepts. And, and over time I got to know what are the strengths of each of the apprentices. So yeah, I, there was one apprentice who I was, um, if you gave him a moment to speak about his practice, it was like, uh, like some kind of channel to deep wisdom, deep, vulnerable, heart opened wisdom that was so available to everybody in the room. Explaining concepts wasn't his ever his forte, and he would often feel jumbled up and lose his way. But when he was speaking from present moment personal experience, it was, and and vice versa. There are some people who are much much better. At, um, at explaining concepts. And then in the personal, it got a little more muddled. So um, it's a range. So that's a piece of it. And then the other piece of it is when you get out, I think the original idea was these men would get out and stay connected and um, connect with the Path of Freedom program on the outside and become voices um, with the experience of the inside to you know, a variety of populations on the, on the outside who might really benefit from hearing their voice. And so far that link hasn't fully been made, but I, I have faith, <laughs> you know, there's a, so many challenges when people yeah. emerge. And I, I think one of our, uh, one of our lifers who is in um, the program has said, said to me once, you know, no matter how much work you do on the outside, when you leave, you end, you have to kind of start where you came in. You have to kind of, and you, you exit where you came in. And there's a certain measure of just having to revisit 
Um, and so I see that. And so, um, but little by little, and I think also it's a little bit of numbers, like the more people you move through, um, the more you might get a few who are able to really take the next step once they're out. Um, and, uh, um, bring everything, all of their experience, um, in a way that is of service, um, to people both who are incarcerated and not. So to their communities when they get out. Yeah. So, um, you've worked in uh, maximum minimum and the women's facilities, right? And so I what, I've never worked in maximum. I've worked in minimum and the, and both medium and minimum, medium, medium and medium and minimum and women's. So yeah. what are the differences? That ah. <laughs> <laughs> just from your experience, it's not like this is a universal stereotyping, but minimum, I, I don't like working in minimum so much in men's minimum so much in part, like, I just feel like there's too much coming and going and coming and going. And the population is younger in general. And so there's more of, there's plenty of no shortage of things we could say is wrong on the outside, but most of those things we don't have a lot of say about um, moment to moment. And so say the average minimum guy who's serving minimum time is still very much oriented to the problem is out there. I just need to get out. And I feel like in media in the medium facility where you have both men who've been around this cycle a lot come in and out and come in and out um, and they're serving longer sentences there's more space for okay there may be a lot of problems on the outside but I'm starting to see that maybe there's something I can do about um, how I relate to everything um, my problems on the inside as well as my problems on the outside. And so that, that both the stability of those populations, they're less chaotic, which is really also speaks a little bit to women's because that's a big problem. Um, there's just, there's so much turnover that no one ever feels stable, even the long timers. Whereas I feel at medium, there's a, a fair amount of stability. Um, and so uh, that plus the, kind of maturity, not to say that young men can't be, I have a couple of young men in my current class that are really like, um, they're very into Bo Lazoff's books and they're very um, excited about the work they're doing. And, um, but uh, yeah, in general, the maturity of the men there, um, I feel, um, and there's quite a number of older, older guys in there that they just, they've been around, a literal block a lot of times. So do you feel there are different skill sets required in the facilitator to perhaps work in the women's population and the men's population that you have to employ? Um, well, the women's is a whole other kettle of fish, I feel like. Um, and I've had my journeys. Um, I'm actually not there right now in part because I just needed a little bit of break from it. Um, and I just feel like in the women's facility, you've just got so many layers of trauma that are right on the surface. The amount of the trauma is a little bit further back in those broad brush strokes. But, and so you're able to kind of work gently in, whereas in the women's facility, the trauma is all right there. And it's just, so the container has to be a really, a little bit different. I definitely, the last few years I've been at women's, both pre-COVID and post-COVID, I, I like working on a mat. 
um, so that we can be a little bit more in the body moving as we are working with all the same material. Um, and just, it, it feels kinder actually, um, to not ask a very, you know, super traumatized, um, person, I think in, you know, this is just going back to trauma-based thing, but it just feels kinder to work very gently and lovingly with the body as the kind of way in. Um, and yeah, so that's just, it's, it's a totally different um, environment. Um, you taught dance for a while to the women. How did that go? I loved teaching dance in the women in the women's facility, and um, I, I sort of am feeling like you know, we'll see. I don't know what the trajectory will be, but I I feel like that's a place where most women have a very kind of core joy experience with dance as a child, like dancing together with their girlfriends. Like that's a pretty like. Uh, universe not I don't know how universal but in my experience pretty universal experience of the women that I experience in there is they when you if you play a song they're like whoop, whoop, and a song that has any kind of resonance either culturally or rhythmically um there's like an immediate uh presence that pops in and um to me that's really a beautiful way to dive into the trauma living in the body it's like because you're, you have the resilience and resource of something that there's already a deep connection to joy around. Um, and so diving in from that place, especially in connection with others, is very sweet and powerful. So, um, yeah. I, I, and, you know, and I like, you know, giving up five second or like one minute opportunity for the men to dance because they have it in them too. <laughs> it's very funny. And they get a, you know, it's a, that's a way of kind of shifting and enlivening the, the group um, uh, together to get them to move into some kind of rhythm together or move into a sense of play together. Um, and it's also really fun for me and it's always a little bit surprising for them. So. You told me something about how you turned some of the topics in the Path of Freedom into sort of movement exercises or something for the men, a drama triangle or something. Did you do that? Um, I mean, I, I way back, uh, way back, I did do a drama triangle dance in the women's facility, uh, in which you know we we played with the sort of dancing of our inner. Um, our vic victim inner state versus our empowered state and how those and then playing back and forth between the two states but I do that in the men's facility too just in terms of like moving around the space in this you know in that the sort of bottom of the drama triangle state or moving around the space in that persecutor place or moving around the space in the rescuer space you know, <laughs> and then moving into what does it feel like in the body I think the more people have a sense of what it feels like in the body to be moving from a place of courage you know it's like that space of open-hearted clear present courage and um, creativity that can have the quality of the functional child and the quality of the functional the nourishing and um, supportive quality of the functional parent ego states both of those ego states and coming from a really a place of how can I meet this next moment as creatively as possible um, yeah, so I like to 
give them opportunities to embody that and play with that too. And we spend our fair amount of time sitting on our cushions, <laughs> our chairs too. Um, but yeah, I like to weave it all together because it feels enlivening for me and it seems to be enlivening for... And you weave in the laughter yoga too somewhat. A little bit. I, I, I don't do that much of it, but they all know that it's available. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and the fellow who's, who's been with me the longest he actually did a he actually had the uh the privilege of actually being in a full laughter yoga class i did once um <laughs> uh, way 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 back and he once said you know at that point he had sat many weekend retreats inside and afterwards he said you know rebecca nothing i have ever done was as heart opening as the hour I spent with you doing oh, after you. Oh, wow. <laughs> that can have an opposite effect too, but yeah, it does have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he has a very, very uh, full personal practice that he brings. Yeah. But there is something really sweet about like really full surrender, like the full surrender of, of um, I mean, to me, that 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 moment of having this opportunity to witness a whole group of very large, quote unquote, scary, fully tattooed or whatever guys lying on the floor, like holding their bellies with tears dropping out of their eyes because they're laughing so hard. That was very precious. I will never I will go to my grave with, with that embedded in my heart. But, but I also like just seeing some of the openings that happen. Um, in the simplicity of uh, presence that can happen in the space of our little, you know, right now, room seven. Um, it's beautiful too. So. so you introduced a practice that I introduced you to uh, that was from Vince Horn and uh, Kenneth Full called social meditation. And I just think that it's, you know, I don't think you did a big, long training in it or anything like that, right? You just, I just told you, okay, this is what you do. And that's how simple this practice is. It seems kind of funny. I think Vince says it seems kind of funny that somebody invented this because it's so obvious. But so how, social meditation, maybe you could just describe what, how you teach that to the uh, folks inside. Yeah. Well, I, I actually have, I was a little resistant initially, I have to say. I was like, I don't really like this. <laughs> then the first time I tried it out inside, I was like, oh, this is a really beautiful, important practice. And now my meditation group on the outside also does it. And I feel like it's a really important, beautiful practice. But it took me actually really stepping fully in, in real time um, with real people, real bodies. And, you know, I realize some people have really beautiful experiences of it online. But for me, the first time I did it in you know, embodied space with other people was the first time I realized how important it is. And essentially, it's just speaking. And there's different ways, there's all kinds of different prompts. But um, the easiest, simplest is, you know, hearing is like this. Tasting is like this. Um, you know, and you, I often keep it to just the senses and thinking. Thinking is like this. And people will speak one at a time. And it just goes around in a circle like so. And people can say pass or people can opt out altogether um, and just bear witness to. But 
I love the practice now. And I feel like I've gotten quite a bit of feedback from both the men and the women of um, it both, it takes away that struggle of the mind running away and then coming back. So it's like, there's not so much struggle when every moment there's an, uh, there's a, a person speaking out loud their experience. Sometimes I ring the bell and I know three quarters of the room just went off to Tahiti or, you know, wherever, I don't know. And so as a teacher being able to kind of like iteratively see what's happening in people's experience because they are speaking to it is very helpful. And the other side of social meditation is that we are humans, we are collective, we are, you know, social creatures. And there's something um, as those uh, speaking of ex personal experience goes around and around and around. It's that round and around and around becomes sort of like a web across the circle. Um, and somebody will say something um, and another person will experience in some way where, you know, the, like I said, the prompts can be really different, but the experiences, oh, I can, whether it's an experience of compassion for the other person's pain that they're just speaking to in that moment, or, um, you know, someone, uh, if you're doing like a social meditation meta and someone's, you know, saying loving kindness, having a loving wish for a loved one and um, being able to kind of join in that wish. So this is sort of like the weaving of connective tissue amongst humans, human beings, that is incredibly beautiful that that container um, creates. So I, I do really like it. And um, for both of those reasons, and, um, and I've enjoyed just exploring different ways to offer it. it seems to be like there are many ways to offer it. And so um, just like there's many ways to offer all kinds of different meditative practices but that one in particular has been fun for me and I feel like very worthwhile so I thank you yeah. <laughs> I, I really enjoy the insights that that you that I hear afterwards about people saying things like um oh I really notice how fast things change for me and everybody else because just as it goes around the circle you could be anxious one moment and then you come back to you and you feel relaxed and that <laughs> and then people will go another thing I just all of a sudden, like uh, this is some kind of insight. Like I, I realize everybody has so much going on in them. And I thought it was just me that was having so much going on, you know, or if you're doing it in a meditative way, it's like, well, I get it that I thought meditation was about being completely silent and no thought. And now I get it that everybody's having these thoughts just like I am, you know, so it's this kind of really connective thing to, like you said, with people. So I think it's a beautiful practice, you know. So what, you know, we're coming up to on the end of time, but what is, what is it that really inspires you about this work or that you've learned about yourself and your own practice by doing this? Hmm. Well, I feel like relative to my own practice, there is, well, A, I know that I have no business walking into a space of, um, people who are facing, you know, a, a level of a lack of freedom and um, 
level of discomfort and powerlessness, I would say. That was a theme that really came up this morning was around powerlessness, um, the felt sense of powerlessness. And so um, I have no business walking into those environments, particularly where many, many of those people have walked very, very different lives than the one I've walked. If I am not living, breathing, like my way through this practice in every moment on the outside, I, I have to walk in. Um, in full integrity and also vulnerability. You know, I think that's something that I've learned along my journey is, you know, there's limits on how vulnerable you can be within that space, but there's also a real gift of, um, you know, you know, I'm not a perfect practitioner. I'm not, I haven't figured it all out. And so there's that vulnerability piece that is there, but also it's like, I know that if I'm going to walk in and to ask people to practice outside of this class that I darn well need to be like, have as much um, uh, fire under my butt and, um, and also compassion all around. And so anything that I'm speaking in that space, it has to be coming from the truest, truest core of me. And so it's, absolutely a beautiful inspiration to practice and they often will say things that are also um uh important to my own practice i remember years ago there was somebody whenever he opened his mouth i knew i was going to get my dharma teaching for the day like <laughs> always um so there's there's that and i also feel when i i you know, there's the curriculum to be covered. There are the practices to dive into. And yeah, the most important thing when I walk in that door is to meet every single person um, with, you know, as well, holding, holding who they are in up and, and meeting that with, you know, respect and loving kindness and, that practice for me of like just showing up a, a person who also works in prisons recently he told me like when I walk in the door I, I tell those guys like you're gonna be loved three times more than you've ever been loved before <laughs> and and I love that it's like I really want them to have an experience especially in in a place where there's so little of that um that's you know respect and love and kindness that, that that's my most important job is to show up um, with those three qualities and then invite, um, invite different ways into, um, an embodiment of those experiences, uh, a personal embodiment of those experiences um, as they relate to themselves and each other on the outside. So I said, you asked me, how's that inspiring to me? That's inspiring to me because I often forget outside, right? I can show up for you guys three with three times as much love, but boy, do I do that with every person in my life. That has been, that has actually been like a recent challenge is what does it mean for me to be actually showing up with that same intention with everybody on the outside too. Um, so incredibly, like that's the heart of practice, right? It's like how we move through the world. And um, so yeah, it's deeply moving work for me. Yeah, well, the, I, you know, I really want to thank you so much, Rebecca. And as a person who has co-taught with you and witnessed you teach many times, I, you know, I'm here to testify that you do have a really strong impact on people and I'm sure you've helped change their lives and, you know, touch them deeply. So thank you so much. For being here. Thank you, Vita, so much for all the work that you do. You know, this summit is a tiny little pinky nail. Finally. <laughs>
the huge amount of effort and dedication and, um, uh, and work that goes into making all of this happen around the world. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.